Let the games begin. By taking some time out of our daily lives to sit down and have a little chat. Chit chat. Yeah, chit chat. Thank you. Conversation must be stimulating. There's still, you need a set of aesthetic guidelines to put it in social perspective. I think. Maybe what we need here is a fresh perspective. Fresh points of view, stimulating conversation. Stop. I thought it would put things in perspective for you. Let's begin. All right. Welcome back to the podcast. Today's episode, we have Hasib Qureshi. He's an influential voice in the crypto space, uh, partner at uh, Dragonfly Capital, and he's had a very interesting career in, in tech over the years. Uh, so he and I worked together briefly uh, at a startup called Outco. Uh, he was a sort of guest speaker, guest lecturer on um, you know technical topics, and um, you know he's just been you know very influential person in my own life, just my career in tech, and excited to have him on today for. Uh, you know, to talk a little bit about crypto, his own journey, and uh, you know some of the kind of things he sees on the horizon uh, in the technology space. So, see, welcome. Maybe uh, give a little intro, and uh, we'll uh, take it from there. Thanks, Sergey. I'm I'm excited to be here, and it's great to great to reconnect. So, my my background, um, I, you, you sort of gave the very brief snapshot. Um, I I have a long journey. I don't know how much detail you want me to go into, but before I ever got into tech, I used to be a professional poker player. I ended up coming into the tech industry largely self-taught. Actually, I studied English and philosophy in college. Um, I ended up moving out to San Francisco. I went to a coding boot camp, learned how to code, uh, eventually became an instructor, and uh, found my way to uh, a software engineering role at Airbnb. Uh, and that's where I was when I first caught the crypto bug. So I got I started doing some security research. Then I worked at a startup called 21, which got acquired by Coinbase. Uh, then I was working on my own startup, building a stablecoin. Um, after that side, after being on the entrepreneur side, I ended up joining the investing side. Um, and so that was early 2018. I joined a, a fund run by Naval Ravikant called Metastable Capital. Um, and then I left Metastable to come and build out Dragonfly, which is where I, where I am now today. So Dragonfly, we're a global crypto venture fund. Uh, we have offices in Beijing, San Francisco, and now in Singapore. And uh, we invest in great founders and early stage disruptive technologies in the in the crypto space. So that's what I do. Cool, awesome. Yeah, that's a great summary. Um, you know, I guess we'll we'll start kind of with the the general question, probably on everyone's mind, is uh, maybe some of the some of the stuff you're excited about in in the crypto space uh, these days, or maybe what's on the horizon. Oof, that's a that's a very broad question. Sure. Uh, what am I excited about in crypto? I, I'd say the biggest thing I'm excited about in crypto, I'd say, I'd say two things broadly. One is that I'm very excited about decentralized finance. It's also known as DeFi. Um, I imagine some of your audience might be familiar, some might not. Decentralized finance is this idea, you know, crypto really started with Bitcoin, which was you know, kind of decentralized gold is the way we think about it today. Um, then you had Ethereum, which is the ability to create decentralized contracts. So you can you know, write code that determines how uh, you know, a financial arrangement between two people gets resolved. And once you have contracts, you can build a lot of other really fancy stuff, right? You can build uh, trading, you can build lending, you can build derivatives, you can build all sorts of financial primitives that you really want in a robust, uh, in, in a robust financial system. But you can build the whole thing completely decentralized. You can build it out in the open, much like the way the internet was built out in the open. Um, decentralized finance is this new ecosystem that's being built on top of Ethereum and a bunch of other blockchain platforms 
that essentially allows a parallel financial system uh, to be constructed that's also globally available, completely open, uh, and 24-7, and, and also extremely efficient relative to how the uh, traditional financial system works in, in some ways. So that, that's one thing I'm really excited about. You know, decentralized finance has grown, you know, basically you know, 20, 30x over the last year and a half. So it's been just absolutely massive, massive growth. Um, but it's also one of the things that I'm personally most excited about in the ways in which crypto can really disrupt a lot of the elements of traditional finance that are relatively stayed, you know, captured, uh, stagnant, uh, and not as innovative as they otherwise could be if finance were purely digital and, and global. So I think, I think that's super cool. It's something I spend a lot of time on and, and uh, I'm really excited about in crypto. The other, the other thing I'd say is just the broad degree to which crypto, you know, people have just built more and more consensus around crypto in the last year. Um, you know, it, it actually wasn't that long ago that when the, the pandemic was first really kicking into gear and uh, you remember, you know, March last year, there was this moment when all financial markets took a nosedive when it became really clear that COVID was just going to take over the world. Uh, and crypto did the same thing. You know, Bitcoin went all the way down to, to $4,000 at that time. And uh, since then, you know, now Bitcoin is at almost 40000 And all, you know, so many of these other assets have really grown in their, in their profile. And so much more consensus has been built around them. From you know, PayPal to BlackRock to JP Morgan to all these different firms that are getting involved in the crypto economy. Um, it's really clear this stuff is here to stay. It's not going anywhere. And every single passing year, it becomes harder and harder to claim that like, oh, Bitcoin is, is just a scam or it's, it's just a fad or it's just this, it's just that. Uh, so uh, that's one thing that's been really heartening to see. And I expect the, the trend to continue is that the voices who say that you know, Bitcoin is never going to work or that crypto is never going to work, uh, they just get weaker and weaker with every passing year. And I think in the last year, we've gone through kind of a phase transition in realizing that like, yeah, this stuff isn't going to go away. And the more that it, people just kind of accept that and just assume that we're going to be in a world where traditional finance is going to coexist with crypto, um, the sooner we get to essentially, you know, the 21st century vision of what finance is going to look like. Now, why do you think that is? Like what, what changed? I mean, obviously COVID, but um, do you think that was the trigger? Was there something else? Was it kind of just brewing and just waiting for like a, uh, a moment to take off? Like with any other shift, there's never just one reason. And it's always a panoply of reasons that, that come together at the same time. So one thing was obviously COVID. Uh, and, you know, why, why does COVID matter? So one, there's a degree to which we're all spending a lot of time indoors and spending a lot of time online and digitally. And you see a lot of traditional finance just get absolutely hammered because, you know, people aren't going into their offices anymore. People aren't going to, you know, things like bank branches and things like that and, uh, you know, getting face to face with somebody negotiating contracts in the traditional world that just stops. But crypto keeps going because crypto is purely digital from the very beginning. When everything transitions to being digital only, well, crypto is already there. Crypto is three steps ahead of you. So that's, so that's one thing. Uh, the second thing I think is that there's increasing with, with the amount of fiscal stimulus and uh, the amount of, you know, people call it money printing. That's, that's happened over the last year as a result of the, of the uh, demand shocks because of COVID. A lot of that has really triggered fears of inflation in the, in the US and in, and in most uh, economies. And with fears of inflation, there's naturally always a, a, 
a desire to say, okay, well, can we find a non-inflationary asset? And Bitcoin is the perfect answer to that. Bitcoin is the definition of a non-inflationary asset. Bitcoin has a fixed supply that's never going to change. And even gold, gold has a, you know, people think about Bitcoin as being an alternative to gold, but gold on this dimension, you know, gold has like a three to 4% inflation rate every year, just because people are mining new gold every year. So the supply of gold is always growing just because of the natural rate at which it's getting mined out of the earth. Um, but, you know, as, as we, uh, this is something I was chatting with a friend about recently, you know, people, we, we've noticed that there's a lot more energy going into space exploration, uh, you know, SpaceX and Blue Origin and, and NASA kind of becoming more muscular over the recent years. Uh, one of the things that is the sort of black swan risk to gold is that uh, we may end up at some point mining a bunch of gold in space, such as, you know, through asteroid mining or other, other kinds of ways in which a lot of these companies actually believe that they may end up monetizing. They may end up making a lot of money through uh, engaging in basically rare mineral or rare resource mining in space. Because, you know, that's where all the gold on Earth was created. It was created by, you know, a star that, that most likely, you know, a supernova at some point. And uh, if you want more gold than what's on Earth, you've got to go to space to go find it. And so it's, it's possible that the supply of gold could very suddenly, rapid, rapidly uh, increase the moment that we end up finding gold deposits elsewhere. Uh, so all that is to say, we really don't know how gold is going to do over the next 100 years. Like, okay, for the next two, three years, like, yeah, okay, gold is going to be gold. But over the next 100 years, who the hell knows? Whereas in Bitcoin, we do know because it's software. In software, we can define exactly how much Bitcoin is ever going to exist and nobody can change it. Uh, Bitcoin is probably the one asset that really actually works from a monetary policy perspective uh, even if the if the humanity is an interplanetary species, which looks like again, you know, it's not going to happen five years from now, but fifty years from now, it's kind of hard to get bet against it. So uh, as you as you look out further and further in the future, and I think you know more and more humanity is starting to think on longer time horizons, it becomes a real question of what is the asset that you want to continue placing your trust in? Is it something that's painstakingly drilled out of the earth that we kind of assume we have some understanding of how much gold there is and how it's going to do and how we're going to continue valuing it? Or do we want to think about in a world where most of the value is already digital, that maybe the way that we think about a store of value should also be digital? So that's the, that's the, the second thing. And then I think the, the, so the, you know, the fears of inflation and the desire for a gold-like asset uh, has, has driven a lot of the demand for Bitcoin. Uh, but I think the third thing, and, and I'll end it here because I could go on for <laughs> much longer than this, That's is great. that you know, as the world has, uh, you know, COVID has, has made the world really kind of shift a lot of secular trends that have been going on for the last 50 years. One of the biggest trends for the last 50 years has been globalization. It's been this idea that the way that we get the most economic efficiency is that everybody works together in this kind of global supply chain for everything. Right. So when you get food, when you get a phone, when you get uh, even when you're you know, calling tech support. Right. There's a global supply chain involved in every single one of those goods. And COVID has, for better or for worse, triggered a strong demand for deglobalization around the world. More and more countries are basically calling for rehoming a lot of their supply chains. And that, that I think it's both true on an economic side. and It's also true on a foreign policy side that the U.S. over the last four years, but it's really kind of come to a, an apotheosis with, with COVID, uh, there's a turn inward. 
there's a turn to say, look, you know, U.S. used to be global policeman. We really don't want to do that anymore. That kind of sucks. It's a raw deal, right? Trump started it, but I think Biden is going to continue the the overall feeling that we want to look out for ourselves now. And in that world, there's going to be more and more demand for a neutral, politically neutral asset, right? The dollar is very, very highly politicized, and more and more countries have been calling for an end to the global uh, reliance on the dollar. And in a world that becomes more multipolar, with the rise of China, with the rise of Russia, with the rise of India, as bigger and bigger economies, uh, naturally you want there to be a neutral asset that doesn't rely entirely on one particular country or one particular hegemony. And Bitcoin is the natural answer to that. Bitcoin is an asset that no country owns, no country controls, no country can control. And that makes it more and more attractive relative to other things that you could you could be holding in a world where uh, there's no single clear regime guiding the entire world anymore. Hmm. That's awesome. There's so many threads I want to go down uh, because that yeah, it's, it's lots to unpack. David, I'll let you ask a question. What do you what's what comes to mind? Yeah, where do you even begin? I mean, you just opened so many doors here. Um, I think one question that I have, and I have a hundred. One question I have is, is it's interesting how you, you started off by talking about DeFi and then you spent a long time, you know, speaking about something that I care about a lot of, about the invention of Bitcoin and how interesting it is and, and all these qualities it has. I guess one question that I have is from your perspective as somebody, you know, meeting so many entrepreneurs in the space and, and following the space so closely, what do you think Bitcoin still needs? What, what needs to come next? What sort of innovation is still open in this world? I mean, of course, you know, here you were talking about how it's had this price growth up to 40K right now. But in terms of most people out in the world, I mean, I, I don't know the exact number, but my sense is the vast majority of people don't own any Bitcoin yet. And so do you imagine a world in the future where everyone and their, and their grandmother are storing Bitcoin under their couch, metaphorically speaking? And if so, is that the case or is something different? And what do we need to get there? So that's a great question. My instinct here is that Bitcoin, the first question you asked was, you know, what else does Bitcoin need to do technologically? And my answer to that is basically nothing. I think Bitcoin is essentially done. It's a finished product. And uh, I know that some Bitcoin people are going to get mad at me. <laughs> you know, they've got things like Mast and, and uh, you know, Schnorr signatures and all sorts of other stuff that, that you know, have, have, uh, are important parts of the, the Bitcoin roadmap. But for the most part, I think we've, we've come to accept that Bitcoin is digital gold. And if Bitcoin is digital gold, then a large part of what makes it valuable is that it's kind of inert. It doesn't really do anything. It, it's, it's sort of a well-understood relatively tame asset. And, and to be honest, that's a large part of the reason why it's become so accepted and why the prices increase so much. You know, a lot of this buying demand has come from institutions. And institutions like Bitcoin, not because it has some you know, aggressive or, or uh, uh, you know, ambitious roadmap of how it's going to improve the technology. The reason why these institutions like Bitcoin is that Bitcoin now has become kind of a tamed macro asset at this mm-hmm. point. Like you can, you can buy Bitcoin through, uh, uh, you know, through, through your Schwab account, uh, most likely an ETF is going to be approved sometime in the next couple of years. Um, you can custody it with 
with uh, with fidelity, and fairly soon, before long, it's going to be you can custody it with State Street. Even um, it's it's kind of become this sort of anodyne macro asset. Has become this quote unquote, unquote digital gold, and as it gets more and more integrated into the financial system, you know, a big thing about Bitcoin is that if you remember the the conflict that a lot of regulators and banks had about Bitcoin in 2016 and 2017, it was that well, Bitcoin is drug money. Bitcoin is what hackers use. Bitcoin is what you know drug dealers use or whatever. And increasingly, it's become accepted that no, Bitcoin is just this financial asset that you can just buy and if you want exposure to whatever the hell Bitcoin is, you know, like this new this new thing that is crypto that goes up and down in a way that's relatively uncorrelated with other assets, um, that's Bitcoin. And if you want that, you can go buy it. And it's it's a, a fairly well understood asset. And there's no real way in which it's tainted by the small portion of people who use it illegally. Even if you look at you know the people in Department of Justice, you know they had totally changed their tune on Bitcoin. Where it used to be, they were they thought Bitcoin was very threatening. Is that okay? If, if somebody goes into Bitcoin, we can't control it. We can't see it. We don't know where it's going. They they're just totally empowered to engage in all sorts of crime if they own Bitcoin. And now it's the other way around. Now crimes that would would otherwise be unsolvable, like if you, if you have some hacker who you know uh, hacks somebody or steals some money, and then you know they end up moving their money into like a you know Hong Kong bank, well then you know you're screwed. You, you, there's no way you can figure out what's going on. But if they if they if they're on Bitcoin, then well, you can trace the funds. Like you can probably contact an exchange. The exchange is going to work with you. Like there, there's actually, in a way, Bitcoin is is an easier asset to get a handle on than U.S. dollars, depending on on, on what exactly you're trying to do. So Bitcoin at this point is not really threatening in any meaningful way to to governments, and that's a large part of what has led to its very broad acceptance. In, in financial markets. And, and I expect that to continue. I think the trend is going to be Bitcoin sort of really kind of loses its teeth. You know, the cypherpunk vision for Bitcoin becomes more and more of a, an ornament on top of what ends up becoming Bitcoin as just a financial asset. So, okay, that's a, that's a, that's a vision for Bitcoin. So, so the question then is, well, how are individuals going to use Bitcoin, right? It's pretty clear from the way the Bitcoin blockchain is architected. It's not particularly scalable. There's no real way that billions of people could own Bitcoin, like actually on the blockchain itself. And I don't expect they ever will because, you know, private key management, if you actually want to own your own Bitcoin in the sense that you custody it yourself, it's just it's just hard. And most people suck at it. And most people need banks because banks are kind of the way in which you sort of idiot proof money. That's that's one of the primary functions of banks is to save you from yourself and also save you, to be clear, save you from bad people who are going to try to trick you, even if it's not just you yourself making a mistake. And um, it's hard. Like, it's it's hard to actually do that. And if you're not particularly well educated or you're not uh, very knowledgeable about the kinds of ways in which your Bitcoin can be stolen, um, we know that Bitcoin is just very, very fraught. Crypto in general is very, very fraught with people trying to come after you, attack you, scam you, hack you. Um, and so I imagine most people in the world, their Bitcoin exposure will be uh, through either banks or through uh, synthetic exposures to Bitcoin. So the answer of how you know a grandma or you know somebody in the third world is going to get exposure to Bitcoin, it's it's going to be through their own financial system, um, and the financial system will give them ready ready ways to have access to that. Uh, I think where crypto ends up looking more disruptive and looking more similar to I think what the original vision of Bitcoin was, which is as this relatively um, 
you know, subversive asset, that's going to be the role of DeFi. DeFi is, is I think, not going to be led in the front door as happily as Bitcoin was. Uh, but I think it has very, very significant disruptive potential um, in a way that Bitcoin, Bitcoin does, but Bitcoin doesn't necessarily compete with a lot of the functions of a normal state or a regulator or government. Um, and that, I think, is the big difference between the two at this point, in my eyes. David, I'm curious. I'm curious what you what you think about that. If you agree, disagree. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree in so many ways. The one piece that you didn't mention that I'm personally really curious about is when am I going to be able to buy coffee? <laughs> but in all seriousness, I mean, I'm actually not a coffee drinker. But in all seriousness, <laughs> like, are do you imagine that like right now, if I want to travel to Europe, I need to go through a bunch of currency exchanges? And, you know, every country I'm swapping currencies. Do you see a vision in which we have a universally accepted, globally accepted currency for payments, not just for digital gold, but for digital cash? Good, 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 good question. Um, I think it's going to be a long time until crypto is able to do that because like the, the the thing that you know technologically we already have a solution to this problem right we have stable coins we have uh stable coins not just in the dollar but also in the euro and the pound and yen and blah 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 and so if you wanted to do this today it's 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 not hard technologically the limitation is not technological the limitation is regulatory and so the question of when are you going to be able to go to paris and buy a cup of coffee uh without having to you know go change into cash for euros or without paying an interchange fee by your credit card. Um, that question is not a question of technology. The technology already exists. The question is one of regulation and how that plays out. I don't know. I don't have a good instinct for uh, how long that will take and how it is that the players who currently have a piece of that VIG, whether it be the credit cards or whether it be, um, you know, the, uh, the, the POS systems or whoever it is along the chain who ends up, uh, extracting a lot of the value from interchange fees in different parts of the world. Uh, you know, there, there are a lot of places in the world where they're primarily still cash economies, right? So if you go to, um, not even not even going to the third world, if you go to somewhere like Berlin, Berlin is mostly a cash economy. People there just don't, you know, they don't, a lot of places don't even take credit cards. So uh, if you want to pay for a cup of coffee, like crypto can't really help you because if they, if it's a cash economy, then uh, look, they're not using crypto. So, that's that you know you're like get them on credit cards first before you start asking them to accept crypto um but you know the, the the question of how all the people who are currently in the loop are going to fight back against a totally open system where anybody can change you know swap dollars to to pounds or to or to uh, euros entirely through public blockchains with minimal slippage uh, when is that going to happen depends on when people let it happen I, I don't have a good instinct for that. Hmm. One of the uh, things we, we talked a lot about, like store value and, and I guess like, um, uh, you know, being able to, I guess, use that payments, I guess, as the use cases. Um, I haven't really touched too much on like the smart contracts aspect. And I think that's a little less clear to me, maybe as like a, you know, outsider to crypto, like what, what the use cases are that you kind of see for that uh, on the horizon and, and also maybe in the future. Well, smart contracts are a very general concept. Uh, we call them smart contracts, but really they're just 
They're just programs. They're, they're programs that can natively interact with money. And that's, that's what's new. It, it's always been the case that in a way, you know, programs can interact with money because that's what you know, every e-commerce website you ever go to is a program that interacts with money. But the money is ultimately controlled by somebody else. Right? So the money is controlled by, you know, uh, Stripe or your credit card or, you know, uh, PayPal or whatever. And uh, basically the, the website can only really do what PayPal lets them do or what Stripe lets them do. In, in the world of smart contracts, in the world of crypto, a program can itself own money, not own money in an abstract sense, but own money in a very literal sense. The program has money. The program owns money. The program can pay people. When you open up the possibilities of what happens when a program can pay people, it's not just that you get streamlined commerce or streamlined um, you know, organizations. It's that you get new kinds of capabilities that weren't previously possible. Such as, for example, uh, you can have programs that hire employees. Now, that's kind of trippy, right? That's, that's, that's pretty insane. What does it mean to have a program that hires employees? Uh, in, in crypto, we have a term for this, which is called a DAO, a decentralized autonomous organization. And the idea of a decentralized autonomous organization is that this is, a, this is an organization in the sense of like a company, but not necessarily you know, isomorphic to a company, where the... The, the, the decentralized organization or the program, we can just call it a program, uh, the program has different people who can weigh in on it. So, you know, let's say, let's say there's a token for this program and everybody who has a token gets to vote uh, on what the program does. But the program itself owns money. The program itself can hire employees. It can hire people to go do its bidding or to, to fix a bug in it, or it can hire people to go do customer service or to market itself, go on Twitter and, and tweet a bunch of memes about it. Uh, it can really do anything that an organization could do, but it does it without being shackled to a particular time, particular place, particular country, particular jurisdiction. What does that make possible? Now, right now, I can tell you what's happening. Right, what's happening is that you've got DeFi, you've got gaming, you've got uh, you know a lot of a lot of things that are that are uh, you know, these futuristic governance experiments that are happening in, in crypto. Um, but I think, of course, NFTs are another big answer to what we see happening in crypto with smart contracts. But I think so far, we've really only scratched the surface. A lot more is coming as this technology becomes more mainstream, as we develop better and better tooling around it, as we start to develop interfaces as well between artificial intelligences and crypto, which right now is still fairly thin, the degree to which uh, any AI really plays into crypto. You know, there are things like Numerai, which of course David is, uh, is, uh, has been a big part of. Uh, but the, the number of experiments there have been relatively thin. But I don't think it'll be too long before you're going to see AIs that have money and can pay people, can enter into negotiations, can, can themselves you know, start organizations and, and hire people. Uh, you, before, you know, I, I would venture that in the next 15 years, you are going to see organizations that live on the blockchain that are entirely run and operated purely by artificial intelligences. And they're going to negotiate with human organizations. We're, we're, we're entering a brave new world, basically. And uh, smart contracts have, have a big role to play in that over the next decade. Um, so that, that's my answer. I could go on for much longer, but uh, you know, I, I don't want to go too far down the rabbit hole uh, lest I lose people. Sure. Yeah. I mean, it's a, 
It's an energizing vi uh, vision. There's no question about that. I mean, it's got aspects of utopia, aspects of dystopia baked in on both sides. I guess one question that, that I'm curious about is, are there particular things that you especially want to see? Like if you had like a request for, you know, if, if the, crypto the perfect, gods. yeah, the, the crypto gods or, or quite seriously, but like the founders of the world or the, the potential founders out there, are there particular things that you would love to see people develop and explore in new ways? It's mm, a good question. Um, you know, to be honest, I don't have a, I don't have, I don't have a great answer to that. Uh, I think, you know, I, th there's some fairly inside baseball stuff that I would like entrepreneurs to, I, you know, I would like to see more entrepreneurs working on, um, there, you know, there's some things around, some things around stable coins some things around their twos and interoperability between different, uh, different chains that I feel like are, are still very unsolved problems in crypto. Um, but it, it's more on the more concrete level. Uh, the honest answer is that I, I I don't actually have very strong things that I want to see per se. It's more that I'm excited to see what's going to happen and how the space evolves. There, there, there are parts of crypto that I'm I'm really excited by because I think they're going to be uh, really good for the world. They're just going to unlock a lot of efficiency and a lot of economic opportunity. And I think DeFi is a big part of what I see as the ways in which crypto is going to make the world more uh, equitable, more fair, more open, more more uh, efficient, and I think that's all great. Uh, there's a lot of stuff like you know what I was just talking about AIs running DAOs on, on the blockchain that I'm just like yeah I, I think it's batshit insane. I you know I have no idea whether this is going to be a good or a bad thing, um, but I do know that it's going to happen, and that uh, you know there, there's there's just no assuming this technology exists, which is you know it's definitely going to continue to exist. And assuming that AI gets better and better, which is going to, because technology only ever improves, um, naturally these two things are going to intersect, and the and the outcome is going to be fairly unpredictable. So I, I sort of see it as a large part of my allegiance to crypto is that I think there there's some ways in which crypto is really unequivocally positive for the world. Um, I think of, I think of DeFi as one of those things, and of course I think of Bitcoin generally as being something that is just unequivocally great that Bitcoin exists. Uh, and that people have the choice now of whether they want to own gold or whether they want to own fiat or whether they want to own Bitcoin. I think it's only good. There's a lot of stuff that's going to happen at the intersection of crypto and other technologies that I have no idea whether they're going to be good or bad. And, uh, but what I do want is I want a front row seat <laughs> to see what happens. Because I know it's coming. You know, you know it's coming one way or another. Uh, it, yeah, exactly. It's, it's sort of like, um, you know, as technology gets better and better, you know, I think quantum computing is a good example of this. Like, you know, quantum computing is going to break all the cryptography in the world if it works. Not all of it, but, you know, most of it. Um, and uh, that being said, like, I really want it to happen because fucking that's so cool. Like, I want to see quantum <laughs> computers, even though it's, going to, it's just going to be an absolute mess if they start working. Um, so that, 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 in a way, my attitude towards crypto in some ways is, is similar, is that uh, I, I don't know how it's going to play out, but I really, really want to see. Yeah, it's almost like you're, you're pursuing or you're encouraging novelty. From like an evolutionary <laughs> point of view, it's like the asteroid strikes the Earth. It's horrible for the last generation of dinosaurs, but it makes room for us small mammals to grow up. I, I wouldn't put it quite in the same language because it, look, it's it, this is going to happen one way or another. 
technology always gets better and it always ends up disrupting what's come before it, period. Right. Always happens without fail. And no technology is just unequivocally positive ever. Every technology has a downside. Right. And you know, crypto is no different than that. And so I think part of being a technologist is embracing both sides of what that means. Always when a new technology is adopted, there's pain, there's, there's displacement, there's a lot of uncertainty about how to best adapt human society to the advent of this new technology. Crypto is going to have its moment where I think right now, honestly, crypto is the easiest it's going to be in terms of how to think about it, how to manage it. Uh, things are only going to get more complicated <laughs> oh, no. from here. Yeah, there's, there's, there's so much more to come. Uh, and I think AI is, is, is broadly similar. Like if we ever get artificial general intelligence, holy fucking shit, man, it's going to be, it's going to be such a bizarre new world. And already we're getting there with things like GPT-3 and deepfakes and all this stuff. Like we're, we're rapidly getting to the point where any Pollyanna-ish, Pollyanna-ish assumption about, well, AI is just going to be good because we're going to get Watson and we're going to be able to diagnose diseases better and blah, blah, blah. It's like, no, 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 no. AI is going to be a complicated basket. But you can't just say no to it. You can't just say like, well, you know, we don't know what's going to happen. So screw AI or let's not do AI. Let's, let's put all this stuff back in the box. There's no such option. Right. Human beings are always going to keep innovating and technology is going to keep moving forward. And you have to wrestle with the complexity of it. There's no other option. I, but I see some tension in the world. I mean, right now we have some regulation, for example, you know, like like gun control is a very popular debate, but there aren't too many people going around, you know, wherever people fall in that debate, there aren't too many people going around and saying, I want every last house to own a nuclear warhead, <laughs> right? Yes. And so we totally. have these sorts of control, we have these sorts of regimes where we say, like, it is bad for the world for weapons of mass destruction to be in, uh, you know, rogue so, state, so-called so rogue, yeah. yeah, rogue leaders. Whereas crypto takes the exact opposite principle. It starts from day one of everyone's exactly equal. Everyone deserves equal access to everything. And censorship is futile. And I see that, that there's ton to be appreciated in that. But do you see the tension the same way? And do you, do you unequivocally land on such a all access for everyone all the time sort of position? I, I, I don't. But I, but I also think that um, you give older technologies too much credit in, in the idea that they, that they have effectively been able to self-regulate. So, you know, I think, I think guns, you, you, you bring up guns and then nuclear warheads as an example. Obviously, the U.S. has done a terrible job actually regulating guns. But, you know, even nuclear warheads, like we kind of lost that. <laughs> like we, we, we sort of fucked that up. Like there's so many nuclear powers in the world. And... The degree to which we can effectively stop countries from becoming nuclear powers is just so weak. It's it's just it, you know we can we can try our best, but you know North Korea has nukes. Like right. you know, one of the poorest countries on earth has, has is, is now nuclear, and the degree to which nuclear proliferation basically just got completely out of hand with respect to the total number of nukes in the world uh, and the amount of accidents that have happened with these nukes is just an absolute travesty. So something even in, in the closest hands of government, um, we really did a pretty shitty job if the goal was like, okay, well, obviously these things are bad. We don't want them to proliferate. We want to avoid this kind of prisoner's dilemma situation. Let's negotiate our way out of it. And you know, I, I don't know that I'd be so sanguine about calling that a success. Uh, now, if you look at other technologies, right? Like look at 3D printing. 
it, like it's over. We lost 3D printing, right? Like there's you, you, anybody can 3D print a gun from anywhere in the world, right? right. It's, just, it's just done. Um, you know, with respect to AI, we, we still don't really know. Like we haven't seen uh, quote unquote AI escape per se, uh, where, you know, for example, GPT-3 is still, as far as we know, under lock and key with open AI. Um, but I, I, I don't suspect it'll be that long before one of these AIs, you know, basically the weights get leaked and we end up having it the case that anybody can control, you know, a very, very powerful AI. Um, we don't know yet. It's too early to say whether or not we're going to be able to keep the lid on that technology very effectively. Um, with cybersecurity, it's just, you know, no, we, we, that, that's been a total mess. Uh, we've completely lost the ability to regulate, to regulate that uh, in, in a global way. And, you know, I think for the most part, our, our record here has not been astounding. Uh, and I, I don't expect crypto to be all that different on that dimension. Um, you know, I don't, I don't expect it to be great, the degree to which we can actually guide everybody toward a global optimum and say, well, okay, everybody stay within these lines, because if we all stay within these lines, we all do great. I think game theory is too strong that people will want to defect in the prisoner's dilemma and right. you'll end up in a place not that dissimilar where we are with most other technologies. But I also think that crypto, you know, I think people also give crypto too little credit for the degree to which it has self-regulated. And the reason why it needs to self-regulate is that if crypto doesn't have good institutions, it also dies. Like look at, I mean, look at DeFi, for example. Uh, you know, it was, it was just a week ago that basically all of crypto fell, you know, 40% in a single day. This was, in terms of dollars wiped out, the largest single day of liquidations in the history of crypto. And every single centralized exchange went down, just get absolutely hammered and went, you know, the risk engines and, and just the number of users who were on them just completely crashed every single uh, centralized exchange in, in crypto. But uh, DeFi worked. Everything in DeFi worked. I didn't see a single failure in DeFi uh, at, at you know, any meaningful scale. And uh, we, we did see failures last March when you know, the big COVID uh, disaster happened. But this time around, everything in DeFi was solid. Now, the question is why? Why did everything in DeFi work? Your, your, your bias should be that, wow, everything in DeFi should break. I mean, look at everything in the regular financial world. Everything in, in uh, all the central exchanges, Coinbase, Binance, blah, 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 they all went down. They all broke. But everything in DeFi worked. The reason why everything in DeFi worked is because it fucking has to work. No one's going to save it if it doesn't work. And so DeFi, the stuff in DeFi today survived because of the selection pressures that have been forcing it to survive. Anything in DeFi that didn't work, it already died. It's already dead. Everything mm -hmm. that you see today in crypto, whether it's Ethereum, whether it's you know, MakerDAO, whether it's Compound, blah, blah, blah. These things are around today because they've survived every previous extinction event, which tells you that in a world where you don't have regulators and you don't have coordination around protecting these institutions, they have to protect themselves. Right. They're anti-fragile. Exactly. They have to be anti-fragile. It selects for anti-fragility. And so in a way, like the, the reason why I have a lot of confidence in the right institutions being built in crypto is that these institutions are built, these institutions that we, that we look at the institutions around Bitcoin, the institutions around Ethereum, they're there and they work the way they do because they have had to in order to survive. That's where, you know, when you look at like, you know, the government, for example, you look at the U.S. government. The U.S. government arose from a series of fights that occurred, you know, basically right after uh, America declared uh, uh, independence from Britain 
Um, there was no one U.S. government. There were a bunch of internal, there was a bunch of infighting that actually resulted in what we today think of as the Constitution and the Bill of Rights and blah, blah, blah. That's the foundation of the U.S. government. Um, the reason why that one worked, as opposed to the previous set of bodies, is because it survived, because it was stable, because it happened to have the right stuff to survive in a place when, you know, to be honest, at that time, governments were much more fragile than they are today. Obviously, now governments are very, very powerful. But back in, you know, the 1800s, uh, governments were just much less powerful than they were today. And they were, they were much more fragile than they are today. Um, and so in the same way, early governments were selected for by their robustness in the face of lots and lots of uncertainty and chaos and, and shitty things that are just going to happen to you. The same thing is happening in crypto. And that's what gives me confidence that actually the characterization of crypto as just being this giant wild west, there's a sense in which it's true, but there's a very big sense in which it's not really true. And it's, a, I think, a, a broad misreading of how crypto has survived up until now. There's this quote I really like that this this whole kind of thread made me think of. It's um, humans are odd that they think order and chaos are somehow opposites <laughs> and try to control what won't be. Um, and it's interesting to see this kind of like this order kind of arise from this very chaotic thing. And that, you know, this when you try to instill order on, you know, regulating or nuclear proliferation or whatever, um, it, it just kind of fails and you end up sort of in this chaotic state. Um, I guess in light of that, I had a follow-up, which I guess is, you know, do, is, there, is there anything you do or practice or sort of like, a, it could be like an internal kind of meditation or something um, in terms of how to develop this stuff responsibly, how you go about thinking about it, right? Because, you know, you could just be like, well, this is like, I, I might be contributing, you know, indirectly, right? If I'm, if I'm pushing this space forward, right? And ultimately mm -hmm. it leads to some kind of perverse outcome right? Like with AI or, or crypto or whatever it is, like even, you know, like space travel, all this, all this sci-fi kind of futuristic technology. Um, is there, is there a way that you find helpful to think about it that kind of maybe, I don't know, helps you sleep at night or kind of rest assured that, you know, it's things will be okay or they'll, they'll kind of work out. Well, I, first of all, very well said on the interplay between chaos and, and order. Um, in terms of me personally, you know, the, it is something that I think about a lot. And I think there are certain projects uh, that I see as, you know, there's, this, there's been this trend lately within crypto of what we call accelerationism, which is this idea that like, well, this thing is not quite a stable equilibrium, so we should just kind of push it to the end state and then just get used to that end state. Um, so there, there are a few things like this, like, uh, you know, with like MEV or bribery attacks or governance tokens or all these sorts of things. They're pretty inside baseball, so I don't want to necessarily go into details of them. But uh, there are a lot of things where people think the way of, uh, you know, we're, we're in an unstable equilibrium, so let's just like push all the way into the stable equilibrium and then deal with it. Hmm. And, um, you know, it's, it's, it's something that I, I'm personally not a fan of because I think that um, one of the bad biases that crypto has is always trying to boil things down into, into game theory and into a, you know, kind of purely economic or purely incentive-based question, um, you know, where it's, where it's basically either, either it's, it's cryptography or it's game theory, it's one or the other. And if, if neither of those two things work, then the system doesn't work. And I don't think that's really true. I think there's a, a very large role in crypto for, you know, for lack of a better term, norm enforcement. 
And I think norm enforcement is a big part of what's made crypto work and made crypto stable up until now. Um, and I think it's something that a lot of people in crypto don't appreciate and don't tend to value very highly. Um, and so that's something I do think a lot about. And I do have a lot of conversations with people more and more these days about um, my perspective there. But a, a lot of it is, you know, again, you, you, you have to take everything with a grain of salt and also you have to, you have to stay humble about the degree to which you personally can really understand where any of this stuff is going. As an investor, my job is not to guide the industry because I don't know where the industry is going. My job is really to understand the industry and to make sure that I'm, you know, I'm, I exert some influence on where things go and how entrepreneurs think. But for the most part, I'm also learning. And I don't necessarily know exactly where these things are going or what their consequences are going to be. And most of the time, I'm, I'm wrong in what I think is actually going to happen when one or another thing ends up, ends up playing out. Um, so despite the fact that I have my concerns about a lot of things happening in crypto, uh, I try to stay humble uh, and, and know that uh, most of the time, these things are just harder to predict than, than you think they're going to be. Cool. Um, let's shift gears a little bit because, uh, you know, I want to be mindful of the timing. Uh, maybe talk a little bit about you as a person. You know, I think, uh, you know, you've got a crazy story. I think, um, you know, I guess so many places, I guess we could start. Uh, one fun kind of question I had, I guess, is do you own any, do you own any NFTs? <laughs> do I own any NFTs? I own a few. I own a few. Okay. Do you, do you mind sharing which ones or, uh, that private? Um, they're not, they're not very interesting. I don't, I don't own any like CryptoPunks or, uh, you know, crypto kitties or anything like that. Um, <laughs> I, I, I realize with respect to NFTs, I'm kind of a boomer. I just <laughs> don't, you know, like I, it, it's not something I have a good instinct for is like, oh, okay, which NFTs are going to go up or down. Or, um, I'm also, I, I'm <laughs> unfortunately also too busy to, uh, to actually be any good at uh, speculating on NFTs individually. I guess one thing that kind of puzzled me about them, uh, I was talking to David about this last night is, um, like the, their value, and and sort of the artificial scarcity around them, uh, mm -hmm. it seems sort of antithetical to what the internet is sort of good at, right? So it's one thing that crypto creates is this this scarcity. Um, I don't know where do you land on kind of like the the value, like and and where that comes from. For well, what I would say is what and the right way to think about NFTs is that NFTs are a titling system. It's a it's a system that encapsulates property rights. That's something that historically the internet has not been very good at. There are, there are, you know, NFTs did not start with crypto. I mean, the term NFT started with crypto, right? But uh, mm -hmm. there are actually a lot of quote unquote non fungible assets on the internet that are valuable. So the, the first really obvious one is, is domain names, right? Domain names are non fungible assets that are individually valuable. Like the most valuable domain names are worth more than the most valuable crypto pumps. Um, but there are a lot of other non fungible assets that are really valuable on the internet, like, you know, uh, Twitter, Twitter handles. So they're, you know, they're secondary marketplace where you can buy like super OG Twitter handles, you know, like, you know, uh, at John, right. That's a, that's a, that's a, you know, four letter word. Holy shit. That's super valuable. And, and there are people who buy and sell uh, some of these OG Twitter handles. But what, what crypto does is it allows you to create a, a common titling system for any non-fungible asset that is, is valuable is financially interoperable and is credibly neutral. Now, why does that matter? Why, who, who cares about that? Why do, why do you need crypto for that? Um, so the first thing is that a, a titling system should be neutral, right? Let's say, let's say that 
just give me a thought experiment. Let's say the three of us are on a desert island, okay? And, uh, you know, we don't, we don't know anybody else who's here. We're kind of stranded from society. And so this desert island, we say, you know what? I'm going to own this plot of land over here, right? Like this little coconut tree and the little area around it, this is mine. And then, you know, Sergey, we, we carve something over there about the beach for you. And then, uh, you know, David, you get, you get some other part of the island. So among the three of us, we all agree who owns what, okay? But let's say, let's say that a few months later, like a helicopter shows up and, you know, the American troops arrive and they're like, oh, great, you guys, we found you guys. Uh, glad, glad we took you up and say, wait, no, hold on, hold on, hold on. We have property rights now. I own this coconut tree. He owns that thing. And this guy owns this thing over here. And they're just like, ha, 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 no, you don't. You, don't, you guys don't know anything here. Uh, <laughs> fuck you. Like, no, we don't, we don't respect your title. Like, no, this is stupid. You guys are idiots. Um, and so they just, you know, they fly off and we don't, we end up without, sure any, are. we don't, we don't, we end up without any ownership of anything, right? Because ultimately, like in order for a titling system to work, it has to be respected by everybody. Everybody has to agree that the titling system you're using is legitimate. So what makes a titling system legitimate? Well, one, it has to be powerful. Everybody has to, you know, there, there's some way in which that titling system has real control over something, right? So the U S government saying you own something is great. Uh, you know, some military junta in some other part of the world saying you own something is maybe more temporary than the U.S. government saying you're owning something, right? So the, the, the degree to which that, that ownership system is kind of uh, uh, is, is both neutral, meaning that everybody can agree to abide by it, two, it actually has ownership over something, control over something, can actually enforce its own rules. Um, those things, and then of course, the degree to which everybody can see it and observe it and and it has total visibility, uh, those things are what make a good titling system. Hmm. So now there's nothing that says this titling system had to live on Ethereum. It could be that we all agreed that like Facebook is going to decide who owns every digital book. And so Facebook could have just a big registry that says, you know, you own, uh, obviously, you know, Facebook decides who owns which Facebook page and which Facebook profile. Um, but we could have ended up in a world where like, you know, somebody created a bunch of crypto punks and they trade on Facebook. And Facebook decides who owns what. And, you know, obviously Facebook kind of does have its own kind of digital goods system, um, but it's pretty thin and it's not very neutral and people don't necessarily trust that Facebook will let them do what they want. And uh, there aren't very clear rules about who owns what when and can Facebook pull these things back or delete them or destroy them or whatever. And a good property registry system should have none of those issues. Hmm. That's what makes public blockchains work so well for it. If you're, if everybody agrees, you're like, look, Ethereum is great. We all agree to use Ethereum. Okay, fine. Uh, you know, the NFTs, uh, nobody can change them. Nobody can move them. Nobody can, uh, uh, you know, revoke your ownership of an asset. Once you own it, you own it. And like, that's, that's that, right? That's what a good property rights system should look like. Uh, all those features are what make NFTs so good at, uh, uh, NFTs on Ethereum or another public blockchain like it, so good at being a way to track digital property rights. Now, the last thing is, do the, these particular NFTs, are these particular NFTs valuable? Well, that depends on, you know, who wants this thing. You know, like, I, I can't tell you whether you should want a CryptoPunk. That's really up to you, whether or not you want a CryptoPunk. Um, but I can tell you that what you should want out of a property right system or a titling system, uh, Ethereum has that. That's my take on, on NFTs. So will these particular NFTs be valuable? I think probably there will be an ebb and flow to the demand for these particular NFTs. But I think the idea that there are digital assets that we want to track and have a neutral platform for the ownership of, that to me is just unequivocally obvious.
I guess I, I, I was kind of trying to segue this into some of the, the stuff you were uh, and, and talk about the, the effect of altruism. I think that, that was super interesting to me because, um, mm-hmm. you know, again, a lot of people are into crypto for the money, but, uh, you know, you're, you know, into effective altruism, which is, you know, giving away money, right? And um, I guess with the NFTs and, and kind of talking about value, right? Uh, one thing I'm, I've always been passionate about is, is education and online education. And that was, you know, what I, what I enjoyed about going through Hack Reactor and then, um, uh, you know, Outco, obviously, schools. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it, it's, it's sort of like, you know, yes, like degrees and, and showing that you sort of pass some kind of test of, of competence. Um, I, I see the value in that, but, but I think like, if you really wanted to maximize the collective good, right, you'd want to expand access as much as possible, which right. seems sort of opposite to let's let's limit this. Let's say this person owns this and let's try to sell this and package this. Um, maybe you could help me square that or um, I don't know, also kind of segue into like your effective altruism and how you think crypto plays a role there. Yeah, well, I'll, I'll, I'll circle back to effective altruism, but I want to dive into sure. this question that you're posing here about the 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 conflict between scarcity and kind of openness or accessibility um i'm curious if you can kind of dive a little bit deeper into your into what you're what you're getting at and it sounds like what you're saying is that you know in nft the idea of the nft is scarcity which also means exclusivity which means excluding other people and it, it sounds like you're saying like well you know in the digital realm really you want to have more things you want to have everybody to have access to this thing is that what you're getting at Somewhat. And it, and it doesn't, it's not limited exclusive to NFTs. I mean, I know a lot of like creators, they have their, um, you know, for, for they'll have Patreon, uh, like tiers where they'll, they'll release like sort of exclusive content. Right. Um, but you know, then they have that freemium tier and that, that seems to me kind of like the most natural sort of thing. Um, it, it seems weird to create something and have this really low marginal cost to distribution and then wanting to limit that thing. Right. And, and limit its access when, when, you know, nowadays it seems kind of like attention is is a form of currency, and you want as many eyeballs and ears uh, listening to your music, watching your videos, um, whatever it is. And and then too, if you kind of think of whatever you're making as having value, like David and I were talking about this this 30 minute video that summarized uh, like a college semester course for him and did it in a much better way, um, and it was freely available on YouTube. Um, it it seems you know so it's not just limited to NFTs, but this, this notion of scarcity versus versus abundance, um, and and where does value sort of, I guess, fall there, right? Because if you can't put a price on something, you know, does it have value? Intuitively, yes, but um, I don't know. I it's I don't know if I put together that thought as a question, but um, no, it's, that's I, how it's, I'm it's a about very it. interesting. It's a very interesting point, and I think the the interesting thing about NFTs in the old world. If you wanted to go buy, um, let's say, you know, a, a song from an artist, right? Then you buy that song. Let's say you, you know, bought on iTunes back in the day, right? So you pay ninety nine cents for the song. Only you can listen to the song, right? It's it's just it, basically it's completely individualized of who gets to listen to what. And in the NFT world, although only one person owns the NFT because it's non fungible, there's only one of it. Um, because you're the only one who owns the NFT. But actually, anybody can view the NFT. So if you created some art or you created some music or you created some video, um, anybody can actually view the video. Anybody can actually listen to the music. But it's yours. Only one person owns it. Now, what the hell does that mean? Hmm. 
Exactly. Like that's, that's the thing that's kind of confusing about NFTs. It's like, okay, well, anybody can see it, so who the hell cares who owns it? Well, here's, here's what I would argue is the kind of analogy for that in the regular world. So, you know, uh, you, you might remember, um, you know, Martin Shkreli, uh, the farmer bro. Remember him? <laughs> yep. So yep. remember he bought this like Wu-Tang Clan, like unreleased album. Uh, do you remember this? It was like yeah, the only and copy. He a bunch of people out. Yeah, he was the only copy, right? <laughs> so this is like the worst version of NFT where, <laughs> you know, it's one dude, one super rich dude buys it and then only he gets to listen to it and nobody else gets to enjoy the, uh, the, the actual artistic creation, right? But it, it, so that sucks. We, NFTs don't work that way, though. NFTs work in the way where anybody can listen to it. So that's kind of great. Well, isn't that kind of stupid, though? Because then why would anybody want to own it? Well, look at the Mona Lisa. The Mona Lisa, possibly the most valuable piece of art in the world. The Mona Lisa is in the Louvre in France, right? If you want to actually see the Mona Lisa, the, the true one and only Mona Lisa, you have to go to the Louvre and stand behind this fucking, you know, velvet thing and like stare from like, you know, 10 yards away to see this actually kind of small painting, right? That's the real Mona Lisa. It's actually not that great to like go, go into the Louvre and to see it because you're know, surrounded by a bunch of tourists. And, um, but you, you know, have you ever been to the Louvre? Yep. Yeah. I saw oh, you have. Okay. Well, let's say, you know, even if you hadn't been to the Louvre, you've seen the Mona Lisa. You've seen the Mona Lisa a fucking quadrillion times. Like going to the, the Louvre and like seeing the Mona Lisa, you can't even see it as well as you can see it the thousands of other times you've seen the Mona Lisa, right? The Mona Lisa is just like an NFT. Everybody yeah. has seen it. Everybody can look at it. Everybody can go Google it right now and just go, you know, pull it up and you can see the Mona Lisa in all of its glory. Um, but to own the real canonical thing is somehow special. Sure. And it's, it's not even necessarily because like, you know, you can see details more clearly. Like you could fucking get, you know, you can imagine that you can get artificially high resolution pictures of yep. Mona Lisa that are even better than what you could see with your own eyes. Um, but there's something about the the physical provenance of this is the, the, the one and only Mona Lisa that came from Leonardo da Vinci. This is that one. Uh, there's something special about that. And as human beings, we acknowledge the specialness of it being the one true one that came from the original. And somebody cares about that. It doesn't have to be you. You know, I don't want the Mona Lisa. I don't give a shit. But mm. other people do. <laughs> and if other people do and they're willing to pay for that scarcity, then sure. all the better. So that's, that's, that's the way that I think about you know, the, the, the scarcity now is not in the content. The scarcity is in the, the provenance of ownership. That's the difference. Got it. So it sounds kind of like the two can coexist, right? You can, you know, for something like the Mona Lisa that has an intrinsic value, right, versus an online course or something that's more a little more extrinsic, more practical, um, you could still somehow have have both worlds. It seems. Yeah, I mean, you could have like Martin Shkreli. Let's say that he like released the audio for the that Wu Tang Clan album, right? Well, yeah. then everybody could enjoy the Wu Tang Clan album, but he still has the actual CD. Right. You know, and like that's special. And, and that might have some value. He special. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Got it. He's an especially interesting character because he, he became famous a few years earlier by first buying up the pharmaceutical company and raising <laughs> the price of the life saving drug. Correct. Correct. So it's one thing when it's just like art and music and entertainment where it's, it's sort of this luxury good, but it's another thing when it's like people need this thing to survive. Agreed. Agreed. Yeah. I guess, yeah, tying that back to the effective altruism thing. Um, are there any causes or, or I guess, you know, we're, we're almost at time. So, I, you know, maybe can't go into too much depth. Um, again, always a wealth of knowledge. But yeah, what do you, uh, 
passionate about or is there, is there some uh, something you've learned that you think is like a good use of, of uh, funds or how to think about effective altruism? Yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll keep it brief because I know we're at the end of time, but um, yeah, effective altruism, in a nutshell, it's the idea of trying to do the most good with the resources that you have. And that's something that I've been very passionate about since I, ever since I first got into the tech industry. And every year I donate a third of my, my income to, to high impact charitable causes. Uh, actually, this year I've been, um, uh, or I should say last year, um, one of the new organizations I started giving to is this organization called SENS. Um, they basically, actually, I, I got turned on to them from a, a donation that Vitalik made to uh, Vitalik Buterin, co-founder of Ethereum, to mm-hmm. SENS. Basically, what they do is they uh, essentially research and advocate for uh, therapies that can extend, um, basically combat uh, diseases related to aging, which is something that as human beings, we kind of take for granted. They're like, oh, okay, well, obviously people just get old and they die and that's part of the circle of life. Um, but a huge amount of the diseases that are associated with aging, like, you know, you don't really die from aging. I mean, some people die from aging, but most of the time, actually, what you die from is other diseases that end up descending on you as you get older. And it turns out a lot of these diseases can actually, you know, there's, there's no reason in principle why a lot of these diseases can't be individually combated, which in aggregate, if you kind of fight more and more of these diseases and you stop kind of feeling like, well, obviously this is just what happens when you get old, but you start taking more seriously the idea that like, hey, maybe we can, maybe we can actually really start to fight a lot of the diseases that make uh, getting old really suck. You know, <laughs> like there, there's some process of getting old that it's like, okay, well, you know, this is naturally going to happen. Um, but there's some parts of getting old that it's like, wait, well, why, why do we just accept this? Why do we just say that? Like, yeah, when you become 70 or 80, like your life just really becomes shitty and then you, you become more and more infirm and more incapable of doing things. Um, so th- th- this is, I think, an area of research that's, that's kind of blossomed a lot over the last decade and I think is going to continue to grow and is something that is under, underexplored as a way to improve uh, human flourishing in the world. So that's something I've been uh, paying more attention to lately and I think is, uh, if, you're, if you're interested, you can, you can check them out. It's S-E-N-S is the uh, abbreviations for the organization. S E S S you said S E N S S E N S got it okay cool like senescence is the senescence, study of yeah. aging that's right that's right awesome well cool we'll uh, wrap it up I think with like two quick questions um, I guess do you have any books or courses or videos or anything that you'd recommend usually we link these in the description um, yeah any anything that's on your uh, nightstand or uh, you think people would benefit from checking out. Um, shoot, that's a good question. What about just generally like life or crypto? Generally, or yeah. And it also doesn't have to be on the spot if, uh, if you needed a little time to think about it, <laughs> let me know. But, uh, uh say, yeah. Yeah. One of, one of my favorite books is The Art of Learning by Josh Waitzkin. Mm-hmm. I'd say yep, great, great book. that, that is one that I, I generally like to recommend to everybody. Awesome. I want to pick that up. I haven't heard about it. Yeah. Very Jeff good. actually is, uh, listen to it. Awesome. I'll let uh, J- uh, David ask the last question. It's a fun one. Yeah. So one of the themes of the Tomorrow People that, that Sergey really inculcated that I've grown to really love is uh, a theme around superheroes, like a, like a mm. Marvel style. And so um, I think one of, one of the views that we have is sort of like, what, what sort of world are we trying to bring about in, in the future? What sort of world are we moving into? And in particular, I want to ask you, what would be your superpower? Or not, not necessarily like flying or invisibility, but more 
manifestly right now, what do you think your superpower is? If you had to think about what really makes you, uh, you know, a unique contributor and, and so effective in the world. It's hmm. a good question. I'd say my superpower is, I'd say it's patience. Hmm. Hmm. I think in order to be successful as an investor, especially in crypto, requires patience. Both patience, one, that the, that the market is going to develop, the market's going to rebound, that, um, you know, things that were times that are dark and crypto has had a lot of dark times are going to eventually get better. Uh, but then also patience to see your see your theses come true, or to uh, or to improve at something that takes a while to improve. I think all these things require patience. And uh, in crypto, you know, a, a lot of the reason why people have missed out on a lot of crypto is that most people I know who are really smart have spent some time in crypto, but then they they got impatient. Progress wasn't fast enough. The development wasn't soon enough. The prices didn't rebound fast enough, and they ended up wandering away. And then they always end up kicking themselves when they come back. And uh, that's, that's, I think, one thing that I've done very well and that uh, uh, maybe I do better than some others. Cool. Beautiful. It's a great note to end it on. Seep, thanks so much for coming on. This was an awesome conversation. Really excited to Thank share with you. Thank you, guys. People. This is really fun. Yeah. Yeah. Hopefully, uh, I'll have you back on someday, maybe when there's uh, some new developments in the space. But, um, you know, like I said, really appreciate the time. And, uh, you know, I guess thanks again for coming on.